Lord, you are Lord of all. Of everything we do and say, the interactions we have, everything that is taking place in our life and in our world, we recognize that you are Lord over it all. You have your mighty hand outstretched and you're holding us. Lord, you are our good and gracious God who is with us, who loves us deeply, who knows everything that's happening and walks with us, and we are not alone. Lord, I pray this morning as we are together as your people, as we sit and worship you, um, God, may you draw us deeper um, toward yourself. May we see more of who you are. May we see the depths of your love this morning. May that be the foundation then for everything we do and say in life. May we go out and love others because we know how deeply loved we are by you. May that be our cornerstone, Lord. And God, this morning, we think of all that is happening in our world, in our community, um, specifically here in the Bay Area and the different communities that have been so impacted by heavy rains. God, we're thankful for it in so many ways because we need it, as we've experienced so many years of drought. But we've also seen so much damage done, um, as it's come at a lot um, and a lot. And God, we just pray that you would provide resources for those who have lost um, or had damaged homes, who uh, maybe are without power, um, who have had their lives deeply impacted uh, by these great rains. Lord, may you raise up people um, to come alongside them and walk with them. And God, may it be a reminder uh, for each of us um, to look to the needs of our neighbor and be your tangible hands and feet on this earth. We pray that we would continue to have that vision as more rains are coming um, and it's going to continue. So God, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we are still in the beginning of this year. Um, may you set our, our hearts and our minds upon you. May you um, just turn our gaze and our focus to who you are, um, all that you're doing, Lord. Open our eyes to see those things um, and give us your vision to love your people. So we lift all of these things up to you. Um, we ask that you would do that this morning. We pray for Eugene as he comes to share this with us later. Uh, may you bless his words and may they um, just deeply impact our hearts. So we love you, God, in your good and holy name. Amen. And as we turn to our scripture reading, um, I would invite you to allow these words from Colossians 1 to just center your heart and your mind on who Christ is. So hear the word of the Lord. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Well, Eugene, I invite you to come up and share with us. Thank you, Becca. Good morning, brothers and sisters. To all of you gathered here and to everyone joining in via the live stream, I wish you all a belated New Year. Oh, happy New Year, I should say, Um, because obviously the year's going to come whether it's happy or not. Amen? (laughs) I was delighted to see so many of you at our New Year's Day service last week. It's hard to believe that it was just last week. I hope you were as blessed as I was during our time together. You may recall John Hanneman's invitation to ring out the old burdens of 2022 and to ring in a new anticipation, a new openness for what God will do in 2023. Now, if I'm going to be a little bit honest and vulnerable with you guys, John's message was really the word of hope that I needed to hear heading into the new year. And perhaps some of you needed to hear it as well. Perhaps we all need a bit of encouragement to ring out and to ring in because perhaps we are finding trouble or we're having trouble finding anything particularly new about this year. It's only been seven days in and we're starting to check the return policy on years. Looks like we are outside of it. I'm sorry, guys, but this is what we've got. I mean, after all, we're still in a pandemic for the third January in a row. And we're still mired in political dysfunction despite the start of a new Congress. And despite another 12 months passing, we're still wrestling with the same social issues, still stuck in the same conflicts, still split up by the same divisions. And to top it all off, we're still in the same book of the Bible we were in a year ago. (laughs) The Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, yes. But we could take it further, couldn't we, to... To say everything is the same as it was last year denies the painfully real ways in which some things seem to be getting worse. Inflation has made purchasing groceries an eye-watering affair. Driving around with a full tank of gas has felt like a luxury. The global economy appears to be headed for deep recession. Some 120,000 tech workers have lost their jobs with more losses on the way. There are fears that Russia will continue to intensify its violence in Ukraine, and COVID variants, too many to count, are running rampant. Now, when I think of all these things, they remind me of a jigsaw puzzle, and I have to admit that I really don't like jigsaw puzzles. I mean, why would someone take a perfectly good picture of something, cut it into pieces, then make us put it back together just to see it? I'll take the box, thank you. The year 2022 felt like a particularly difficult puzzle to me. Everything had fallen apart, and we were just beginning to put the pieces back together. But throughout the year, again and again, 2022 would tip over its box and dump another batch of pieces on the table. And here I am now wondering what 2023 has in its box, unsure how many more pieces the table of my heart can hold. 
And maybe you're with me in feeling these things. I meet with a spiritual director once a month, and whenever he sees me puzzling over the pieces of my life, he asks me the same question. Eugene, what are the corner pieces of your life? He's referring, of course, to the best strategy for solving a puzzle. You start with the corner pieces. They're the easiest ones to place because they really don't fit anywhere else but at the corners. And once they're in place, figuring out where everything else fits is much easier. So it's absolutely worth the time and effort to sift through the pile of pieces on the table, however many hundreds or even thousands of them there may be, until you find those corner pieces. And the same strategy applies to our lives, brothers and sisters. When we look inside ourselves, we often find a heaping pile of disordered thoughts and beliefs and feelings. And when things happen to us or around us, more thoughts and more beliefs, more feelings get dumped onto the pile. And without a starting point for ordering these pieces, the disorder can leave us feeling disoriented and distressed and even depressed. But when we take the time to sift through the pieces, we do find the ones that belong at the corners. We rediscover the truths that define who we are and how we think and what we do. And around those corner piece truths, we can order the other thoughts, beliefs, and feelings inside of us. And the end result is something truly good, something truly beautiful, something truly necessary in this disordered world. The second half of the letter to the Colossians is all about this process of moving from corner piece truths to transformed behavior and relationships. The first half of the letter ended with Paul exposing the false religion practiced by the would-be influencers in Colossae. He showed how the dubious benefits of their rituals were nothing compared to the reality of what the Colossian believers had already received in Christ. But as helpful as Paul's words were, the Colossian believers still had questions that needed to be answered. If the influencer's religion was false, what did genuine spirituality look like in practice? And how would they continue in it amid the disordered world of first century Colossae? The Colossian believers faced a puzzle of their own. And Paul responded to them much as my spiritual director does to me. He pointed them back to corner piece truths. We'll be looking into two of these corner piece truths today and next week, God willing. And in the weeks after, we will see how believing these truths transform, transforms our behaviors and deepens our relationships and strengthens our participation in God's great commission. And perhaps along the way, we will find what we need to pull together the pieces of who we are as we face 2023 and beyond. So let's begin with a word, one more of prayer, and then we'll jump into our passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this opportunity to be once again in your word together, once again worshiping together, once again hearing your truth, singing it back to you, once again giving space in our hearts to you for your reality to settle into who we are. So God, by your reality, by your goodness, by your grace, would you transform us and change us from the inside out as we look into one of these corner piece truths today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me read for you our passage, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, Paul wrote, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Our passage begins with a conditional, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now whenever I come across a conditional like this in the Bible, my knee-jerk reaction is to wonder, well, have I? Have I been raised with Christ? Paul probably intended to trigger this question among his readers, but only to get them thinking honestly and critically, not fearfully. This is a first-class conditional. The reality of the condition itself is already assumed. In other words, Paul assumed that the Colossian believers had indeed been raised with Christ, and so there was no need for insecurity. But perhaps there was some need for explanation. Because what does that mean? What does it mean to be to have been raised with Christ. The tense is interesting. If Paul had said, you will be raised with Christ, we would take it as an affirmation of their future resurrection and then just move right along because that would make sense to us, wouldn't it? But the tense of the condition is past. In Greek, it is the aorist, suggesting that their resurrection had already taken place, that it was already a completed action. But how? Back in Colossians 2, 12 to 13, Paul reminded the Colossian believers, you were buried with him, with Christ, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. For Paul, baptism symbolized believers' participation both in Christ's death on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. By faith, believers participate in Christ's death by allowing his death to take the place of their own as the payment for their sins. This is symbolized by being submerged underwater. By the same faith, believers also participate in Christ's resurrection by living in the newness of life made possible by the Holy Spirit and by looking forward to the day when their physical bodies will also be resurrected. This is symbolized by being raised out of the water. Now Paul's implied affirmation that the Colossian believers had been raised with Christ, it points back to their baptism and all it symbolized for them especially, though, their new lives with the Holy Spirit. Even though their bodies had remained more or less the same, the Colossian believers had begun experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit changing their hearts. And one day, this internal change would spread to the rest of their being, and their resurrection will be complete. It was in this sense that the Colossian believers had already been raised with Christ. So to put it simply, Paul was essentially affirming the Colossian believers' identity with Christ. And that's something he'd already done several times in the letter. But he did so again here with a conditional in order to set up the command that follows it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. This command to seek the things that are above, it is rooted in the truth of who they were. It applies to them because they had put their faith in Christ. Had they not put their faith in Christ, then this command would not have applied to them. But because they had indeed already been raised with Christ, because they had become united with Christ in faith, it was only right for them to obey Paul's command. And Paul's command was simple. Seek 
the things that are above. The Greek verb translated as seek can also mean strive for, wish for, pursue, try to obtain, ardently desire. The form of the verb is present and active, suggesting that this should be done without ceasing. Seek continually, strive for, relentlessly, ardently, and persistently desire. And what is it that is to be sought? Paul wrote, the things that are above. Now at face value, this could be interpreted simply as the things encountered in the heavenly realm, which was thought of as existing literally above this realm in those days. Paul rephrased this command in verse 2, contrasting the things that are above with things that are on earth. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, in verse 2. We'll come back to the change in verbs from seek to set your minds on in a moment, but for now, let's just focus on this contrast between things above and things that are on earth. If we interpret things that are on earth the same way we interpreted the things that are above, then we would say that the things that are on earth simply are the things that we encounter here on this level of reality in the earthly realm. You're probably thinking, yeah, Eugene, that's just what it says. Well, so it seems, it does seem that Paul was commanding the Colossian believers to seek things pertaining to the heavenly realm and to avoid things pertaining to the earthly realm. But what are the things pertaining to the heavenly realm? What are they exactly? Are we talking about angels, the spirits of deceased believers, the living creatures around the throne of God? Was Paul really telling the Colossian believers to think about these kinds of things? Didn't Paul just criticize the false teachers in Colossae for thinking too much about these heavenly things? And what are the things pertaining to the earthly realm? Let's think about that. What did he have in mind? Our families, are we not supposed to think about them? Our jobs? Our communities? Didn't Paul encourage believers in other letters, but even in this letter later, as we'll see, God willing, didn't he encourage them to think carefully and seriously about all these things that we encounter on this level of reality? Well, yes. And so it seems that we can't really take these categories at face value. To get at the heart of what Paul's meaning, we really need to look back to the end of verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Why should the Colossian believers seek the things above and not the things that are on earth? Well, because of where Christ is. Because Christ is above, not on earth. But Christ is everywhere, isn't he? Isn't that something that we believe as Christians? Yes, by his spirit dwelling within us and at work in this world, Christ is in a very real sense everywhere, everywhere we go and everywhere we don't. But in another very real sense, Christ is also not here, even as he is here. When Christ was raised from the dead, he was given a new body. And with that body, he ascended to heaven as his disciples turned apostles watched. They received his spiritual presence with them through the unbodied Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but Christ remains in his resurrection body in the heavenly realm. So he is with us, and yet at the same time, he is not. Now, this can be confusing stuff, but really, we experience this to a lesser extent every day, don't we? Take video calling, for example. 
When my parents went to see their grandchildren, they video call me and my wife on our smartphones. And within moments, no plane rides required, they are seeing William and Theodore, and William and Theodore are seeing them. And for all intents and purposes, they are there together, despite being physically apart. As embodied human beings, we can't be everywhere at once, but through technology, we can be virtually anywhere in the world, as long as you are willing to accept certain limitations. And of course, we've seen those limitations clearly in the cold light of the pandemic, haven't we? I don't need to remind any of you of them here. Perhaps video calling is preferred in certain situations and under certain conditions, but I think most would agree that video calling isn't a perfect replacement for being in the direct presence of other people. But it is a decent metaphor for life as a believer between the two advents of Christ. Christ is physically in the heavenly realm, a realm which we cannot simply visit whenever we please. But in his physical absence, Christ is spiritually present with us through the Holy Spirit. But like a video call, the way the Holy Spirit communicates the presence of Christ to us has some limitations, and it's all right to admit that. We might feel Christ's presence with us, but for now, it comes to us primarily through Spirit-empowered means of grace such as the word, in prayer, in worship, in the community. Are we grateful for the Holy Spirit? Of course. Is the work of the Holy Spirit essential and effective? Without a doubt. But something can be good while still leaving us wanting more, can't it? But that's actually more next week's sermon than today's. The point today is that Christ is at present in the heavenly realm in a way that he is not at present on earth. What is Christ doing there? What's he up to? What defines his presence there in contrast to his presence or lack thereof here? Well, Paul's answer is simple. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To a modern reader, this might be an oddly specific detail for Paul to share about Christ. I didn't know God had a right or a left hand. I mean, are we talking about his right hand facing him or... His right hand face, you know. To a modern reader, this might seem kind of just like a superfluous detail, but for Paul and his original audience, the image of Christ seated at the right hand of God was of immense significance. The people groups of the ancient world typically lived under kings who ruled them with absolute authority. And efficiency required each king to employ officials to represent him in various capacities. Sometimes among the king's officials, one would arise who possessed extraordinary skill, leadership, and understanding of the king's will. This official would be raised above their peers and be given vast authority over the kingdom. They would be the king's most trusted advisor, most loyal subject, and most powerful executor of his will. And they would occupy the place of highest honor in the royal court, the right hand of the king. The right hand of the king was a familiar concept for the people of Israel. The prophets among them even used it as a metaphor to describe the unique relationship a future Davidic king would have with God. They prophesied that this king would be so united with God in purpose and in power that God would elevate him to the seat at his right hand. The prime example of this is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. 
Rule in the midst of your enemies. In this psalm, David shared a vision of a future descendant of his being invited by the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, to sit at the Lord's right hand. And as he takes his place at the right hand of God, this future Davidic king is empowered to defeat all his enemies and rule his people. All resistance is shattered to pieces. This is the authority and power of the one who sits at the right hand of God. And it was this authority and power that Christ claimed for himself when he implied that he was the future descendant David saw in his vision. And it was this authority and power he declared would one day be revealed to those who arrested, tried, and crucified him. And it was this authority and power that Christ accepted as he ascended to the heavenly realm after his resurrection. And it was this authority and power that Stephen, the first Christian martyr, witnessed before he died. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, brothers and sisters, when Paul declared that Christ is in the heavenly realm, seated at the right hand of God, it wasn't really about above or below in a literal sense. It was about authority and power. Paul's point was that Christ has it all. He has all of it. Christ is God's right-hand man. He is his most trusted confidant. He is his most faithful servant, his most authoritative, powerful executor of his will. This is the reality that Paul wanted to impress upon the Colossian believers. Amid the pile of thoughts and beliefs and feelings filling their hearts, amid whatever else the world might dump on them, the Colossian believers were to hold on to this corner piece of truth. That Christ is ruling and reigning all reality from the right hand of God. And this, brothers and sisters, is good news. This is gospel. Christ is ruling and reigning all reality, and he does it all for our good and his glory. He who loved us to the very end of his infinite life is also the one in control of all things. Nothing escapes his grasp. Nothing escapes his notice. He sees all and he knows all and he is watching over us all with one hand on our hearts and the other hand on the steering wheel of reality. It was this truth Paul had in mind when he urged the Colossian believers to seek the things above. Set your mind on things above. Seek the reality of Christ's rule and reign. Hold on to it. Set it as the corner piece of your heart and build yourself around it. This was Paul's exhortation to the Colossian believers, but brothers and sisters, it applies to us as well because have we not also been raised with Christ? Have we not also participated in the life of his spirit? Have we not also begun to experience the transformation of our hearts to love and to trust and obey God? If then we also have been raised with Christ, then let us also seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But how do we do this? How do we hold on to this corner piece truth? Well, remember that verb change in verse 2 when Paul rephrased his command? Let's take a closer look at it. 
Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. To seek something, we need to set our minds on it. We must set our intentions on it. We must direct our thoughts towards it. We must imagine it, picture it in our minds, and allow that picture to flourish and to even come alive to all of our senses. A passing acknowledgement simply won't do. A quick glance before we get to the other stuff we have planned for the day is insufficient. I believe this is what Paul meant when he warned against setting our minds on things that are on earth. The problem is not that earthly things are unworthy of our thoughts. As we said before, Paul would soon exhort the Colossian believers to be thoughtful about their community, to be thoughtful about their families, to be thoughtful about their jobs and the mission that God had commissioned them for. No, the problem is that setting our minds exclusively on the things of this world causes us to forget the rule and reign of Christ. Because looking around, a person would not immediately guess that Christ is at present ruling and reigning. I know that might be disturbing for some to hear a pastor say this, but don't misunderstand me. I firmly believe that Christ is ruling and reigning presently over all things, and the Holy Spirit does enable us to see at least some of what he is doing in and around us, yet the people of this world still resist the rule and reign of Christ. Not all recognize the truth of his birth and death and resurrection and ascension. Not all entrust themselves to his provision and to his care. In fact, most do not. And that unbelief is reflected in the cultures and institutions and systems that dominate our lives that we encounter each day at school and at work and among our friends and in our families and even in ourselves by way of habit. And not only that, but creation itself seems to barely hold together. Things happen in this world and in our bodies that challenge our belief that Christ is presently ruling and reigning. Natural disasters. Floods and famines and atmospheric rivers, infectious diseases. From the looks of things, it doesn't always seem like Christ is ruling and reigning from the right hand of God. But despite, brothers and sisters, despite what we see with our eyes, we know in our minds by faithful testimony and in our hearts by the indwelling spirit that Christ did rise from the dead. He did. He was dead. He was buried in the tomb. His body was inert. He stopped moving. He stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. The neurons in his brain stopped firing until they started again. And then his heart started beating again. And then his, his lungs started feeling with air again. And in the silence of that grave, in the silence of that tomb, he came to life and he opened the door of that tomb. The stone was rolled away. He greeted the angel on his way out and he waited to meet his disciples. He waited to see those women to tell them the good news that he is alive. He is alive, brothers and sisters. He is risen from the dead and he's at the right hand of of God, and he is ruling all things for our good. Amen. And his will, his will for us is right and true, and though we may not always see our good flourishing in an immediate sense, and though we may not always see the rightness and the trueness of the will of God that he executes, 
when we look at our minuscule snapshots of life, one day we will see the whole picture. And so in the meantime, we hold on to this corner piece truth. And it is enough to pull together the pieces of our lives and even to create something truly good, something truly beautiful, something truly needed in this world, in a world as disordered as ours. But he begins with turning from the so-called realities of this world and setting our minds on the reality of Christ's rule and reign. And that means learning to reject the earthly and worldly assumption that there is no God above, that there is no Christ who rules and reigns. It means learning to resist the temptation to go along with the rest of the Christ-denying world thinking the way they do and competing and fighting and surviving the way they do with only themselves and their abilities and their resources to depend on. It means learning to release our circumstances into Christ's hands, learning to relieve ourselves of the lie that only we can solve this problem, that only we can fix that situation, that only we can carry this burden. In other words, setting our minds on the rule and reign of Christ means unlearning everything the world has taught us. And in the space left by this unlearning, we lay down the corner piece truth of Christ's rule and reign. And if it gets buried by the other pieces life throws at us, if it gets lost in that mix, we take the time to dig through the pile and find it again and set it back where it belongs. Paul's command is simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Sometimes holding on to this corner piece is the hardest thing for us to do. Because it doesn't always feel like good news that Christ is in control. Because sometimes the things that the ruling and reigning Christ allows to come our way, sometimes they cause us pain. And sometimes that disappoints us. Sometimes that makes us feel angry. Sometimes that makes us want to pick up that corner piece and throw it right in the trash. I know that sometimes when I put puzzles together, I feel tempted. This doesn't fit anywhere, does it? Just throw it away. And sometimes, for some of us, just the fear of feeling those negative emotions, just the fear that we might feel badly, that's enough to keep us from wanting to dig up that corner piece in the first place. The truth can't hurt us if we don't look at it, right? But brothers and sisters, it is safe. It is safe for us to wrestle with this corner piece truth, even if it stirs in us painful emotions. Not only is it safe, but it is also necessary because emotional honesty is necessary for healthy relationships, whether with people or with God. Powerful and self-protective emotions like anger and disappointment must be expressed before we are ready to have honest and vulnerable conversations with anyone. And God welcomes our honesty. He wants our vulnerability. He is willing to receive our emotions, however big and heavy and ugly they might be. Just look at the story of Job. Job's 40-chapter argument with God proves that not only can God receive the anger of his children, but he can even get into it with them, all without ending their relationship. God never stopped loving Job. He never stopped being proud of him. He never stopped being his father. And Christ, our brother, is no different. 
So let us set our minds, brothers and sisters, on the ruling and reigning Christ without fear and without hesitation. Let us look into this corner piece truth with all honesty and vulnerability and let us allow it to stir up in us peace and joy, even if it means working through our anger and disappointment. Perhaps that means taking time out of each day to return our thoughts to the ruling and reigning Christ. Five minutes might be all we can muster, but that's okay. That's a good place to start. Perhaps that means turning off the news one day a week and replacing the pundits with a podcast that reminds us of the ruling and reigning Christ. Perhaps setting our minds on things above means connecting with other believers to see how the Holy Spirit is centering them on the ruling and reigning Christ. We can get crazy with this. We can get creative with this. But most of all, perhaps it means using our Sunday services to remember this corner piece truth and to set our intention to live in it. I'd like to invite the worship team to return to the stage. And as they make their way up here, I invite you to use our service, the end of it, in this way. Let's set our minds on the rule and reign of Christ. And let's ask the Spirit if there is something he wants us to try that might help us keep our minds there on Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Well, on your way into service today, you may have picked up a little puzzle piece, and you'll notice that every one of those pieces in that basket is a corner piece. I would invite you just to consider if it would be helpful to grab one of those on your way out or dig up the one that you brought in and to write on it this corner piece truth. Tuck it away in your pocket, throw it in your purse, put it in your backpack, set it on your table at work, whatever might help you so that you can look at it every now and then and remember this truth that Christ is ruling and reigning all things from the right hand of the Father. Now receive these words of benediction. As you go from this place, as you go into a world that seems disordered, disorienting, discombobulated, as you go into that place, into that world, may God give you the grace to carry with you the truth that he indeed is ruling and reigning, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that he sees you and knows you, goes before you and is with you. Be well and be blessed. Thank you.